Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4? We're going to look tonight at verses 18 through 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. We're going to be talking about spiritual arrogance. Spiritual arrogance. You know, it's a hard thing to be around arrogant people, but particularly when they're spiritually arrogant. And the Apostle Paul, as we have seen in recent verses in chapter 4, loves the Corinthian believers. All that he's told them is from a loving heart. He's been very tough on them from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way down to where we are just picking up in this particular message. And all of it has to do what, with what people who have detached themselves for Christ from Christ and attached themselves to something else and all of it has to do with, with the result of all of that. If they had just lived attached to Jesus, he wouldn't have had to say the hard things that he's had to say. But he said all those tough things to help them to understand that they need to come back and live by faith. Come back to just attach themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we saw in verse 14 how concerned he was. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He said, now, the idea is you may be ashamed and sin will cause you to be ashamed, but I'm not writing to shame you. I'm not writing to embarrass you or humiliate you. I love you. And that's why I've said these difficult things to you. And so this came out of the, the wellspring of a heart of a father to a child. He was very compassionate towards them. It says in verse 15, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, a guardian, somebody who watches over you, he says, you can have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. And, and this is what he's trying to bring out. He's like a father loving his children and telling them what they need to do to come back to the well of blessing. Well, we saw his counsel in verse 16. He says, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. That word mime, we get the word mime from. Paul's not concerned about how they talk. Paul's concerned about how they walk. And he says, do as I do, but really not more than that. He's saying, do as I have taught you. Do, follow me in that sense of the word. Don't be me, but you do as I do. You obey the word that I've taught you. Continue on in the teachings that I have given to you. And then to further demonstrate his love for them. The apostle Paul does something here. He's going to send his own trusted companion, Timothy, to be with them. 
You have to understand, Timothy was his right-hand man. Timothy was his, was his brother in the Lord, his son in the faith, he called him. But look at it in verse 17 in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, for this reason, and he ties it right together with what he said. He says, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. The reason he sent Timothy was because they need to be reminded. The word remind means put it back in the mind where the mind sees it, clearly sees it, and remembers how they're supposed to live. Timothy's just going to remind them and remind them and remind them and remind them. Well, today we come to verse 18. Paul now turns to the guilty ones, and he'll address all the ones that are guilty now as he continues on in the book. They know who they are. You know, in the military, they have several readiness levels called DEFCON 5, and that's the easiest level that you're ever on. DEFCON 4, uh-oh, something's going on. We better move it up a level. DEFCON 3, and that's, that's pretty serious. DEFCON 2, oh no, that's, that's really up there. And then DEFCON 1, and DEFCON 1 is when our military armed forces in our country are under the threat of a foreign attack. And DEFCON 1, we haven't been at that very often in America, but DEFCON 1 is a, is a point of urgency. The attack is imminent. I thought about that. The Apostle Paul from chapter 1, verse 12, has gone from DEFCON 5 to DEFCON 1. <laughs> After he's told him, I love you, I'm your father in the faith, man, he's, he turned around now. And now he's going to move in with force. And what we're going to see tonight is he's going to address those spiritually arrogant people. Now, by that we mean those who have detached themselves from Christ and have attached themselves to anything of the flesh. And I want you to remember, as we go through Corinthians, we see people attached to people. We see people attached to their opinions. We see people attached to the lust of their flesh. We see people attached to their spiritual gifts. We see people attached to just about everything you can attach yourself to. And the whole problem is they've detached themselves from Christ. Before I even get started tonight, let me ask you a question. What are you attached to? What are you attached to? And it's going to tell you everything about your spiritual condition. If you're not living attached to Christ, as verses 2 through 9 talks about in chapter 1, then evidently everything else goes awry. Well, look at verse 18. We're going to read down through verse 21, then we'll look at the verses. Now, some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power. He says in verse 21, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod <laughs> or love and a spirit of gentleness? Now he doesn't tell us who these people are that are spiritually arrogant. The thought even went through my mind. I wonder if it's the leadership of the church of Corinth, but he does not say that specifically. So we have to leave it open-ended. Whoever they are, their mess, the message Paul sends to them is very clear. First of all, he deals with their spiritual insolence. You know, when you're spiritually arrogant, there's going to be an insolent attitude about you, an uh, 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 unwillingness to obey authority. He says in verse 18, Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Now when he says uh, some, I think that's important. Because if you go back to verse 12, go back, back to verse 12 of chapter 1. This is important to me. I don't know if it is to you or not. 
But I'm not studying. I saw a little difference here. He says, some of you have become arrogant. Look back in chapter 1, verse 12. He says, now I mean this, that some of you, is that what he says there? No, he says, each one of you, hesketos. But the word he uses here is the word that is the plural form of the little word tis, which means some of you, talking about more than one, but not all of you. I think that's significant. Somewhere along the way, perhaps we can discover why that is so significant. The verb have become is the aorist passive indicative. Something has caused them, to some of these people, to become arrogant. The subject is being acted upon when you have the passive voice. Now the word for arrogant is an interesting word. It's going to take us a while tonight to deal with it. It's the word fusio. <laughs> or actually fusio. <laughs> it's got two O's on the end of it. In other words, when somebody is this way, it's clearly evident to everybody. But what does that mean? Well, it comes from the word that means to blow or to inflate something up. You ever tried to inflate one of those rubber rafts? You know, you just, and when you finish blowing it up, it's full of air. And you, you might mistake that and think it's not. You think it's a real mattress. You jump on it hard enough, you'll find out that it's only air. <laughs> when, the, when the thing pops and the air goes out and it goes flat again, it, it's, it's air on the inside of it. Uh, the idea in the New Testament is of pride and conceit and has the, has the thought of somebody thinking more highly of themselves than they should and, and therefore putting themselves into a position to where they will not listen to anyone else. To be, to be an arrogant bag of wind. When I was blowing up a, a blowhard, just somebody just always full of hot air, that kind of individual. Well, it's used six times in 1 Corinthians. And then I'll tell you what, it gives us a vivid description of what we're talking about here. When somebody is spiritually arrogant, they're a big bag of wind. That's all they are. And we see some, some things that comes out about them that's very important. The first time it's used is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and in verse 6. We've, we've passed this verse, but let's go back to it. Because it tells us something about the spiritually arrogant. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in verse 6. He says in verse 6 there of chapter 4, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes. Now he's dropped off Cephas and some of you are of Christ. He's, he's just dealing with himself and Apollos here. And he says, we're doing it for a reason. That in us you might learn, now watch, not to exceed what is written. In order that none of, no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Now arrogance is, is, is alongside of exceeding that which is written. In literal form, it means to not go above that which is written, as if your will and your desire is higher than what God's desire is. So the first thing we've got to understand about a person who's spiritually arrogant is that he's certainly willing to exceed that which is written, to go above that which God has written. Now when a person does that, he or she, whoever it is, obviously does not respect the authority of God. Now if we don't respect God's authority, it's obvious we won't respect the Word as being our authority, and then therefore we don't expect any authority. We become our own authority. That's what it means to be spiritually arrogant. That's where it starts. The very moment I detach myself from surrendering to Christ, walking and living up under His Word, is the moment I attach myself to something else and decide that I'm going to go above that which is written. I don't need the Word. I can go above it. I can exceed that which is written, and we become our own authority. This person's thinking, whoever they might be, and his, his way is right. In other words, 
Nobody's going to change him. He's going to be like he's going to be. He, nobody can tell him anything. And as a result, we see other characteristics develop in his life. Look over in chapter 5 and verse 2 where it's also used in Corinthians. It makes us insensitive to sin. It makes us insensitive to sin. That's what chapter 5 is going to start addressing head on. And it says in verse 2, And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. They were refusing to practice any kind of church discipline over somebody who was committing incest with somebody in his own family, as chapter 5 is going to talk about when we get there. But because you've become arrogant and you've exceeded what's written and you become your own authority, now you're insensitive to sin and you won't deal with it. There's no discipline of sin amongst you. Well, in chapter 8, in verse 1, it shows us something else that happens to the spiritually arrogant, those who exceed the written word, those who are going to be their own authority. They're bags of wind, but they think they're, they're doing it the their right way. Chapter 8 and verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. You become proud of your knowledge. You become proud of your knowledge. Of course, God resists the proud. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. So a person who is spiritually arrogant is a person who is proud of his knowledge, but he has no love to go along with it, which proves the fact that he's living that which God has spoken. And then we find over in chapter 13 in verse 4. A person who is spiritually arrogant is unable to display any of the love of God. You see, this kind of love that's the fruit of the Spirit of God cannot be displayed by a person who's living attached to anything other than Christ. It says in verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag, and love is not what? Arrogant. So you're beginning to understand, I think, a little bit about what it means to be spiritually arrogant. It's a person not living attached to Christ. It's a person who's detached himself from Christ, moved above and beyond the Word of God, become his own authority, and therefore now the flesh reigns in his life. He's immature, he's fleshly, as, as Paul has already identified the church at Corinth. Now this seems to be the thought of what he's talking about back in verse 18. Go now to verse 18 of chapter 4. He says, now some, not all of you, some have become arrogant. Now look, as though I were not coming to you. Now, this, this, this really got to me. That passive voice is used, you've become arrogant. Now what is it that made them become arrogant other than the fact that they detached themselves for Christ? Well, there was another thought here. And that is that Paul is not coming to them. <laughs> now you say, why, what's that got to do with anything? Is not coming, present participle. In other words, he's not even on his way. He's, he's not even beginning to come back to Corinth. You say, what does this have to do with anything? Listen, the Apostle Paul is not only their spiritual father, he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he saw back in chapter 1 and verse 1. He's the authority. And buddy, when there's no authority around, when the cat's away, the mice will play. And so those who are living exceeding the Word of God, they're saying and they're boasting, oh, Paul's not going to come back. We're just going to do what we want to do. And the Apostle Paul says, ah, that's the height of insolence. You won't submit to God. Why would I even think that you'd submit to me, you see? 
That's the, that's the insolent attitude, the rebellious spirit of a person who is spiritually arrogant. But when the cat's away, the mice will play. Years ago, I went fishing with two boys in my youth program. I was about 22. I wasn't even married yet. One of the boys was 15. One had just turned 16. And they were in my youth program, so I took them fishing up on the James River in Virginia. Now, the one who was 16, like I said, just turned 16, hadn't been three days. I got him in the car. I said, guys, how old are you? David, how old are you? He said, I just turned 15. I said, how old are you, Bill? Bill said, I'm 16 years old. Just turned 16. He's proud of it. I said, well, Bill, we're going to have to stop on the way and buy you a fishing license. And here was Bill's reply. <laughs> at that time, the reason I'm taking them fishing is because I'd already heard of the rebellious spirit they had at home, and I'm trying to work with them just a little bit. And Bill looks at me and said, hey, I've been fishing up this place a hundred times. I have not yet seen a game warden. I'm not going to get a license because the game warden's not going to come. <laughs> Boy, we had to walk down across a big old field and got down on the James River. We started fishing. David got out in the river. You know, there's a verse that says, the wicked flee when no man pursues. That's David. You got to understand the two guys I'm working with. That's David out in the river. He's only 15. He doesn't even need a license. Well, the, he looks up and we don't see him. He looks up and sees a green uniform coming out across the field with a big badge on. <laughs> And he said, oh, no. And David takes off down the river. And David was okay. He was only 15. But like I said, the wicked flee when no man pursue. Bill, we finally turn around and realize he's coming. It's too late for Bill to run. So Bill decides just to lie. Well, the, the guy walked up nice as he could be. And he said, fellas, can I see your license? Well, I pulled mine out and showed it to him. He said, thank you, sir. And he said, uh, now, sir, can I see yours, young man? He said, no, sir. He said, I'm just 15. And you know what was amazing? That game warden discerned that he was lying to him. I knew he did. As a matter of fact, when I looked at the game warden, I just thought I had to turn and look the other way. And he said, well, let me ask you a question. How old, young man, will you be on your next birthday? He said, 17. <laughs> and just nailed him. I mean, it's, it's amazing how he did that. When I thought about it afterwards, I said, that is the height. The, uh, uh, that's ingenious, man, what he did. He knew immediately he was lying. And so therefore it cost him 65 bucks. But Bill's whole attitude was, the only reason I'd have to obey is if the game warden's here and the game warden never has come around. So therefore I'm not gonna buy a license. That's the way it is. Well, Brother Wayne, I'm not in church and, and Jesus hadn't come back yet and, and I, I can just do what I wanna do and nobody's gonna tell me any different and that's the whole thing. And Paul is trying to, hey, hey guys, he's just exposing the insolent attitude they have. He says, many of you are doing what you're doing because of the rumor that I'm not even coming. No wonder he said to the Philippian church, I'm so thankful for you because you're not even, you're not only obedient when I'm with you, but much more so in my absence. And what does that tell you? That means the person you're being obedient to is not the man who had the authority, but it's God who gives the authority. And once I'm obedient to God, then I can become submissive to others. And a person who's spiritually arrogant, who doesn't need the word of God, who detaches himself from what God has to say, who becomes his own authority, the only time he's even nervous is if somebody who is a spiritual authority gets around him. Boy, sitting on these planes up in the first class with some of the rich drunks has been more fun. And you sit next to some of these guys and they say, hey, what you? I say, what do you do? Man, I'm CEO of some big company. And he starts telling you all about the, the tough stuff they do. And, the, da, da, da. and then he looks at me and says, as he's drinking the drink that they give to him, 
He says, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. It's, to folks, if this isn't the height of what I'm talking about here tonight, they break up into a rash. <laughs> they, can memorize, they can memorize a computer manual. And yet, when it comes to talking to a preacher, they don't even know how to open their mouth. And I guarantee you, nine out of ten of them are deacons in some church someplace, and now they're nervous because somebody who represents authority is sitting next to them. Had I not sat there, they wouldn't have bothered with it. And that, that, folks, it, a man is what he is when he's by himself. And the height of spiritual arrogance is that the only time we get nervous is if somebody with spiritual authority comes around us. And it tells you where your heart is that fast. Well, he said, back in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, called by Christ and by the will of God. So therefore, we know he's the authority. You know, that game morning that walked out across that field had a big badge on. The apostle Paul, in a spiritual sense, wore a big badge. He was an apostle in those days. And therefore, he said, some of you have become arrogant because it is said, I'm not coming to you. <laughs> so therefore, you think you can just do whatever you want to do. You know, in the book of Judges that we studied, remember I told you when we started studying 1 Corinthians, the reason I chose 1 Corinthians was because after we did Judges, I wanted a New Testament counterpart to that. And that's the church of Corinth. And what was the key verse of the book of Judges? And remember, in Judges 17 and verse 6, also in chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Nobody had a badge on. So every man did what was right in his own eyes. So Paul here exposes the insolent attitude of the spiritual arrogant. It's, a, it's, a, it's an attitude that I'm not under anybody's authority and you're not going to tell me anything. And the only time I'm going to get nervous is if somebody with a badge comes around. I was riding down a road from Memphis, Tennessee one time. Had that CB radio. I may have told you this before, but it was so funny. I was riding down the road and I was trying to learn how to work that thing. And I just got, hadn't had it long. I was the big dipper. Baptized. Big Dipper. So I'm riding down the road and I said, hey, it's a Big Dipper. Anybody out there? This guy came back and said, hey, yeah, good buddy. He said, he said, put the hammer, he said, what is that? Put the hammer to the, what is it? The pedal to the metal. That's it. <laughs> Let the hammer down. That's the part I want. Let the hammer down. He said, there's not a smoky all the way to the coast. Well, I was just driving along. I had my had cruise control. Thank God for cruise control. That just keeps me honest. And I said it what it's supposed to be. And I'm riding along. And everybody on there saying, hey, man, just put the, there's one guy saying, put the pedal to the metal. There's not a smoky around here. And about that time, somebody comes back on and says, hey, man, slow down. The guy that's telling you to put the pedal to the metal is a smoky. And he's sitting down here about 25 miles. He's got 15 cars pulled off the road. And everybody, boy, they started saying all kinds of things on there that I'd rather not tell you. And then one guy just comes on and he just, he doesn't ever identify himself. He just pops on. He says, well, if you'd obey the law, you wouldn't have to worry about them. And just got off real quick. And somebody else came in, didn't identify themselves either, said, amen. <laughs> in other words, the wicked, this, the attitude of arrogance is that you're under no authority. 
So therefore, the only time you're nervous is if somebody who represents that authority gets around you. Otherwise, you're going to do what you're going to do because you've detached yourself from Christ and you're living that conceited, arrogant life of the church of Corinth. Well, the second thing he does, he warns them. He said, now I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you. And when I get there, I'm going to observe whether or not there's any power with all these good words that you're sharing with everybody. It's one thing to boast about it. It's not your, your talk, folks. It's the walk that's behind your talk. Somebody told me years ago, my reputation is what people think about me. My character is what my wife and my children know about me. But you know, you can go another step than that. It's really what God knows about me when I'm by myself. It even takes it further than that. Well, verse 19, he says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. You may sound intelligent. You know, for the word for word here is logos and logos means intelligent words. But be real careful. You can have somebody who gives intelligent words that might even sound spiritual, but you better be careful. That doesn't document it. Look at the life that backs it up. Do they live what they preach? Is there any power of God behind it? Is there the touch of God on their life? This is kind of where he's headed. Now, these people, whoever they were, were thought that Paul wasn't coming back. And Paul said, hey, I am coming back. But then he qualifies it. He says, he says I'm going to find out. He said, but if, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. I'll come to you soon if the Lord wills. That word soon means immediately, quickly. I mean, before you can blink an eye. It, it's the word used in Galatians 1, 6 when he says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him. And then over in Philippians 2, 19, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy, Timothy to you shortly. He means right away. This is right away. And Paul said, I'm coming to you right away. Sometimes you think of soon. And what does that really mean? But right away, with, with an immediate, I'm coming to you. But then he adds something to it. He qualifies it. He said, if the Lord wills. You know what I like about the Apostle Paul? He's come out of that old nursery, hadn't he? He's, thrown, he's, he's already thrown his pacifier away, and he's learned some things in qualifying what he says. He's learned what Proverbs says. Proverbs says in chapter 16 and verse 9, the, man, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So it'd be foolish for Paul to say, I'm coming soon. He's not real sure if God might, might not intervene in that. So he puts a disclaimer on it. <laughs> I, as far as I have anything to do with it, I'm coming soon. But I know something about this. I've been this route before. God just might have other ideas before I get there. He wasn't an immature believer. God had taught him quite a bit about this. He had full intentions, but if the Lord wills. And by the way, the word will, the lemma, is that which God intends and which God gets involved with in carrying it all the way out to its purpose. So, and James chapter 4, turn over to James chapter 4, verse 14. James says the same thing. James chapter 4, and verse 14 and verse 15. See, when you're up under subjection to Christ, you can't even tell what you're going to do tomorrow. You, you just plan your way and let God direct your step. That's when the adventure begins. But if you're detached from Him, you can make all kinds of promises you can't keep. But you see, you understand that God's going to direct your paths even though you plan your way when you're attached to him. Verse 14 of James 4, he says, Yet you do not know what your life will be tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Isn't that an incredible statement? A vapor that appears and just vanishes away? No, Brother Wayne. You know, I didn't understand that years ago because uh, days sometimes would go by so fast. But now that I'm 54... Months go by so fast. <laughs> Years go by so fast. And I'm thinking, wow, 
just a vapor. Quickly appeared. And then it says in verse 15, instead you ought to say, James says, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. Now let's look at Paul's life just for a second. I know I'm taking a side thought here, but remember he's writing to immature believers, but this is a mature believer. Let's just see some things he's learned in scripture about what he just said to them. He's already exposed their own arrogance. They don't live up under the authority of God. They could give a rip. They don't, they don't live in the word of God, but now he does. Now what can we learn from a man who does live this way? Well, he lives day to time. Look over in Acts chapter 16. And this is just a couple instances in his life, and I won't even make you look up the second one, but just this first one about how Paul had to learn that what he intended to do might not be what God was intending to do. And if you're submitted to what God is intending to do, you're willing to turn it loose and let God do it, even in the little things. Acts 16 and verse 6. I love these verses because it's so comforting sometimes because he had the right intentions. He just didn't, <laughs> he wasn't in the right direction yet. He says, and they passed through the Persian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia. And the imperfect tense is used in this. I mean, they, they tried, they tried again. <laughs> they tried and they tried again. And I, I love that because at least it's honest. He says, and the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. No, it wasn't Wayne. The devil stopped them. <laughs> I hope we understand that we're mature enough to know the devil's on a leash. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go in there. Verse 8, and passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And aren't you glad tonight in America that he went down to Troas? Because it was at Troas he got the Macedonian vision. Then he took the fact that he couldn't get into all these other places. Then he concluded that he must go over to Macedonia. And, and that concluded means he didn't just go by the vision. He took all the other factors, factored them in, drew a line and said, wow, it's obvious to me, God's sending me someplace else. And that was the southernmost tip of Europe. Christianity started there, moved up to a place called England. And as a result of that, there was a group of people that came from England over to America for freedom, religious freedom. And here we are today in the United States of America. Thank God where he intended to go, God had a better place for him to go. And Paul had learned this. That even though you plan your way, God directs your steps. And that's what he's saying to him. Hey, I'm not talking, I'm talking to some immature folks here, but I'm not immature because I know something. I walk with God and I'm surrendered to his will. I'm telling you I'm coming soon, but I'm giving a disclaimer here because I'm under authority to the one who tells me where I'm going and when I'm going there. And it might not be as soon as I thought it was going to be. Like over in the book of Romans, and we won't have to look over there, but he said, I can't wait to get to the church of Rome. I can't wait to preach the gospel to you. And then he goes on at the end of the book, and he says, I'm going to come to you by way of Spain. And, and I'm, after I go to Jerusalem, little did he know what was ahead of him. When he got to Jerusalem, as a result of that, he spent almost five years of his life in prison, two, two to two and a half years in Caesarea, and then the rest of it in Rome on a false accusation. He did get to Rome, but he went in chains, not like he thought he was going to go. So the Apostle Paul is even modeling what he's trying to tell them. I'm under authority. I'm telling you I'm coming soon, buddy. When I get there, I'm going to look at your life, not what you say. But if the Lord wills, I'll be there soon because I don't know exactly what he wants to tell me tomorrow. But I'm coming. You put that rumor to rest if God will let. And I'm going to look at your life. I'm not going to listen to what you say. An airbag, when it's burst, reveals nothing but an empty container. Have you bought any potato chips lately? 
Raise your hand if you bought him potato chips lately. Now, I know most of you are on diets and don't eat that stuff. But I have to have it to keep my system greased up. But you, you know these big bags? Hey, have you bought these big bags of potato chips? And you're thinking, man, this will last, what, for two months. And what happens when you get home and let the air out? There's hardly anything in them. That's what people are that are spiritually arrogant. They can put on the dog, but they can come to church, act like they love Jesus. They can talk it, buddy, but they don't walk it. You put some pressure on them, and what's going to be revealed is nothing but air. That's what arrogance is all about. And Paul says, when I come, I don't want to hear what you say. I want to see how you're living. If God's hand, if his grace is enabling you to be what he told you you need to be. Paul says to those who have become arrogant, I want to look at your power. Now the word for power there is the word dunamis. We know that word. Normally it always refers to the ability required to accomplish a task our Lord Jesus assigned when you put it in spiritual vocabulary. But really not here. That's part of it. But really that's not all of it here. In 1 Corinthians 4.18 it refers to the essential reality of something. The true nature of something. The source of something. You see, the only source that these people had was hot air. But he wants to find the source of something. Where's it coming from? Like in Philippians 3.10, he says the power of his resurrection. Not just the power, but the source of that power being God himself. Look over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. I'll show you what I'm talking about. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. He talks about the last days. And he talks about something here and he uses it in such a way, I think it's clear that we can see he's talking about the source of it. Not just the ability, that's part of it certainly, but the actual source where it comes from. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5. He says in verse 5 of that chapter, he says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its what? Its power. And who is the power? It's the Holy Spirit of God living in us. And it's God's grace that enables us. So it's not just the ability. That's part of it. It's the source. It's where you're coming from. It's what, where all this. And in the context, he, he, he contrasts it with words. Because you see, it's not just words that we're looking at. It's also the power that goes along with the words. That's what he's saying. Look over in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. I, well, when I saw this, I, it really hit me that I had seen this other places and I didn't even realize it. First Thessalonians chapter one and verse five. He says in verse five, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. See, it didn't come to you in word only, but also how, in what? In power, and then he, and he equates that power, and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, he's not talking about signs and wonders. He's talking about the greatest sign and wonder. How a man can be transformed from within. How a man can actually become enabled to be that which God has told him to be. That's, the, that's real power. This other stuff, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't hang my hat on any of it. But what Paul says, it proved, we, we proved what manner of men we were. We didn't just tell you something we live before you what we said, you see, so that the, the glory would go to him and not to us. It's not just in word, it's with power. So when he comes, he's, he says, hey, I hear you. 
I hear you, your talk. And it's intelligent using the word logos. It's not just babble like laleos or something like that. He said, I, I know that you sound intelligent with some of the things you're saying. Some of you have come to pretty boastful conclusions here. I'm not even coming to hear that. I'm coming to see where you're coming from. I want to see you walk. I want to see you walk. You know, it's amazing how even at church, some of us act spiritual, but wouldn't it be great if we could just be a fly on the wall in everybody's house? <laughs> no, it wouldn't be great. But it would be honest, wouldn't it? Where are we coming from? We talk it, but where's the power behind it? Not the power to do miracles, the great miracle of being what God tells us we're supposed to be. Well, to illustrate this, I think Paul over in chapter 12 does it. Look over in chapter 12 and verse 4. I, th I think this is what he's saying there. The, there's three things that have got to be accompanied together. If it's God's in it, it's not just what you say. It's God's hand upon it, the power, the grace that enables and transforms. And by the way, with that grace comes the ability to discern when it's there. <laughs> that's, that's grace in itself, to be able to discern when somebody who talks it, walks it. You can, there's a discernment, not, not from man, it comes from God. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit Verse 5, and there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. Holy Spirit gives the gifts. Christ gives the ministry. But look at verse 6. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. It's like the Spirit gives the gift, the, the Jesus gives the ministry, and the Father takes care of the results. Well, if any one of those are missing, something's wrong. <laughs> you know, so many people come to me all the time and say, Wayne, I just really believe I'm called to preach. Can you get me a church? And I'm thinking, I don't know who people think I am. <laughs> First of all, they find out about our church and they're going, going to ask you because <laughs> we're not kosher. I mean, elders in the Southern Baptist Church, I mean, they, they really are excited about when we tell them that we believe in received ministry, not achieved ministry, and et cetera. But hey, if God calls a man and if God gifts a man, then God will give the ministry and God will give the effect. Have we ever stopped to think, and I know I'm taking another side street here, but have we ever stopped to think that some people that think they're called to the ministry might not be in the preaching ministry, might be someplace else. I think for all these years, we felt like if anybody's in the ministry, he's got to either be a preacher or a music leader or whatever. But hey, any Christian that attaches himself to Christ becomes a ministry and then a minister. And then let God give the ministry and God will give the effect. But if people go to a school and get a degree, they think they qualify. And they, everything they say sounds intelligent. But there's never the power that backs that up. To me, hey, don't worry about that. And God's the one who does it, as he wills, it says on over in 1 Corinthians. Well, I'm sorry if I took you too far chasing a rabbit on that. But anyway, he's saying, I'm coming to see where you're coming from. I want to see you walk, not you talk. The effect, I believe, is what he's talking about. And uh, where is the power that is there. Look in chapter 2 and verse 2 of 1 Corinthians and remember how Paul came to them. He, he, he's his own example. He's his own illustration. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. He says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He understood his responsibility. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He understood that he could stand there and intellectualize any of them out of the group. 
But he said, I didn't come that way. I came in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And then verse 5, why? That your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And the evidence of that power? Look in verse 5 of chapter 3. Here's the evidence of the power that worked along with Paul when he came. He didn't just speak intelligent words coming from God and from God's Word. Something went along with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? God was giving the growth. There's your effect. There's the proof of the pudding there. There is what he's talking about. You can say and talk and talk and talk. Where are the spiritual things that go along with it? The enabling power that God had. Words are cheap. And Paul says, I'm coming to see the source of your words. I'm going to check your lifestyle. I'm not coming to hear what you have to say. I'm coming to see how you walk. And verse 20 says, for the kingdom of God. The word kingdom is the territory where a king reigns. And if you're saying you're members of the kingdom of God and you're part of the territory, your hearts are part of the territory where God reigns, he says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. A divine enablement to be what God has commanded you to be. And Paul says, hey, I already know of your insolence. And I'm coming to check and see whether there's any impotence here in your spiritual ability to be the people God's called you to be. And he already knows the answer to both of those things. Well, and the last thing I want to share with you, now, now what he's going to do, he's going to ask him a question. Sound like my mom or my dad. Somebody loves you will ask you this question. Look what he says in verse 21. What do you desire, he says? Shall I come to you with a rod <laughs> or with love and a spirit of gentleness? You know what he's saying? He's saying, you want to deal with it now? Or do you want me to come and deal with it? That's what he's saying. Well, it's like many times my dad's called me up on the phone and I hadn't done something. He says, now, son, do you want to do it now? Or would you rather me come home to encourage you to do it? It's amazing how quickly you will move knowing that the authority is coming. And by the way, he wears the badge, folks. He's an apostle. And he said, I am coming, God willing. You either deal with it now or I bring the rod with me. Now, you think he's going to bring a stick and beat him? No, but I guarantee I, I'm going to have to ask him in heaven. Most pastors have thought about it. <laughs> you know, hey, brother, I got to tell you the funniest thing. I was in a meeting this past week and these people came and they were post-trip. I mean, I never have met a poster. I've met mids. And our males, but I've never met a pie. Hey, that's, that's the one that bleeds. We're going to go, whoop, whoop. You know, you, <laughs> after it's over with, we, we raptured you, right back down, okay? And they, they, they really got on me, and we had more fun. I said, hey, I'm not going to fight with you. I'm not going to fight with you. You stay if you want to stay. All my, all, my, all my little cliches that I've used, and it didn't work. Finally, one day, it hit me and the pastor who's there, Bubba Beasley. We both decided, you know what? I, I think we're going to switch to post. Because for pastors, we've already been through the tribulation, and I think the members ought to go through it, so we'll go play golf while the rest of them go through it. No, I, anyway, we have a little time. There are times, there are times when a pastor feels like taking a stick to somebody. There's times when you think that a spiritual hit squad might even do the work. Hey, where's old brother? What's his? I don't know. I haven't seen him around here. I don't know where he went. 
<laughs> that little guy's a black armband. I'm, I'm kidding. This is going to be on television. <laughs> you think that sometimes. That's what I'm saying. But the Apostle Paul really is saying, if you, if you take a rod to somebody, it's painful, isn't it? And what he's saying is, if I come, you think it's painful for me to write you. It's going to be a whole lot more painful if I come and have to deal with it with you. Now make up your mind. Get it right and get it right now. You want to deal with it now? You want to wait till I come. He said, I think you'd rather me come with love and a spirit of gentleness. That word gentleness has that idea of brokenness, but it's not weakness. That's not what he's saying. It's power that's under control. And what he's saying is, would would you rather have me that way? Like a broken horse. When you break a horse, that that horse is still powerful, but it's broken. He said, you want me to come that way? Because I, as an apostle, have an authority here. Or do you want to deal with it before I get there? You have to make up your own mind. And what father wouldn't do this? Remember, he's already qualified most of this message anyway. In Proverbs 3.12, for whom the Lord loves, he does what? He reproves. Even as a father, the son in whom he delights. He loves these people. He's not trying to embarrass them. He loves them. Hebrews 12.6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. You know what the word scourge means? It means beat the hide clean off. That's my own personal definition. Revelation 3 verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And it's exactly what Paul is saying to the church of Corinth. Don't make me have to come to you. Be zealous and repent. He's established the fact that he's their spiritual father. And now he's warning them. What do you desire? Shall I come with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Well, we don't have any more time. And tonight it's an interesting thing because of what he's been talking about. In chapter 5, immediately he says, now I've got a problem. There's immorality among you and there's no discipline of such sin. And because of your arrogance and your unwillingness to obey Christ, you've become insensitive to these type of manners. Now, are we going to deal with them? That's what he says. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 